Thanks, guys. All right, so you can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, or turn on your phones, whatever's easier. Um, so as you know, here at Creekside, we <clears throat> excuse me, teach through books of the Bible, and today we're going to dive into the Old Testament. We tend to go back and forth between Old and New, so we did Nehemiah at the beginning of last year, and then we did John. We finished out the year with John, and now we're going to jump back into the Old Testament and walk through 1 Samuel. And I think the most important question for me whenever I read a new book of the Bible or you kind of just jump into something is you really need to understand, and this goes for everybody, you need to understand where does this book fit into the greater context of not only Scripture, but what God is doing. You can read a book without knowing anything about it. I remember when I was a kid, you'd have these flannel graphs. Does anybody remember these flannel graphs? Am I the only one that grew up in the 80s and knew flannel graphs? But these little sticky things you put on this green backboard, and I would learn all these stories about Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath, and you know, you just learn all these things. But if you asked me to place those in order, okay, tell me which one happened first, or tell me what the relevance was. What was happening when Daniel was in the lion's den? What was happening when David killed Goliath? Why is that important to the greater picture of what God is doing in Israel? Like if you ask, and I'm not, I'm not saying I was expected to know those things in third grade when I was looking at flannel graphs, but as I got older, it still was difficult to, it's fun to go read a really good story in scripture, but it doesn't necessarily lead you to the greater story of what God is doing. So as we, before we go into Samuel, I'm going to spend probably five minutes, which most of you know that means ten, going through, um, giving you just a little background to 1 Samuel, so kind of leading you up to 1 Samuel. So I know this is going to be a little difficult to read. Um, I can read it, and that's important. So the first book all the way to the left, as you open your Bible, is Genesis. So Genesis is where everything starts, Right? In the beginning, God created. Humanity begins. And following the sin of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's sin, they're kicked out of the garden. We have ten generations of people following Adam and Eve. And then you get to a guy named Noah. Okay? Noah obviously builds an ark. He builds an ark to avoid a great flood that's coming. That's another story in the Bible in Genesis. Then you have ten more generations of people. The Jews were always really good about their genealogies, so it's easy to count the generations. So you have ten more generations of people from Noah, and you get to this guy named Abraham. And God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. Like, your descendants are going to be important. I'm going to bless you. They're going to be a people. I'm going to make them a great people. And it's an amazing promise, but Sarah and Abraham are barren. They don't have kids. And if you read the story, you remember the story, they kind of try to take matters into their own hands and they do things and, you know, stuff doesn't work out the way it should have worked out. Well, eventually they have a son and they name him Isaac. And Isaac grows up and has a son named Jacob. So you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob. These are kind of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. In Genesis 32, God appears to Jacob and says, I'm going to change your name to Israel. So anytime you hear the word Israel or Israelites, you need to think Jacob because his name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons and those 12 sons become the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. If you ever hear any references to the 12 tribes of Israel, that's Jacob and his 12 sons. 
and all of their families, all the descendants of those 12 sons. So the family grows as Genesis goes on, and eventually they become very powerful. And the scripture says there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know the Israelites, and they take him into captivity. So the Israelites, Jacob and his whole clan, which have become hundreds of thousands at this point over the three or 400 years, they are taken into captivity in Egypt. Okay, hundreds of years go by. The people cry out. They're like, God, we need to be delivered. And so God raises up a man named Moses. You remember Moses? God raises up a man named Moses, and Moses is going to lead them out of Egypt and into the land that was promised to Abraham, which is referred to as the promised land. So that's, that's ultimately where they're headed. And Moses is the man to do that. So Moses goes in front of Pharaoh and says, let my people go. God said, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And it kind of goes back and forth. And there are 10 plagues that happen, if you remember the plagues. And that's really what ushered the Israelites out of Egypt. And we read about their leaving Egypt. They're exiting in the next book of the Bible, which is Exodus. And they leave Egypt And they go out, and if you remember, God parts the Red Sea, and they go through the Red Sea, and the waters fall down on the Egyptians, and they eventually get to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is important because at Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments. And they also get the law. We read about the law at Mount Sinai. And if you ever read Leviticus, which is the next book of the Bible, it's the law. Okay, so that's why Leviticus can sometimes be a little hard to read. It's probably your favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus. Um, But they they go, they get the law, and then as they're going towards the promised land, there's a lack of faith, there's disobedience. And God says, you know what? An entire generation of Israelites is going to die off, and you will not enter the promised land. So Numbers, if you read Numbers, the book of Numbers, which is the next book, there's these desert wanderings and grumbling and complaining. It's like this cycle of good things happen, they get happy, bad things happen, they get mad, and you know, probably a lot like our lives. But there's just this cycle of things that happen in the book of Numbers, and then you get to Deuteronomy. So this whole generation of people have died off. 40 years of desert wanderings. Think of where you were 40 years ago. Some of you are like, I'm not 40, so that's hard to do. But think of, so for those of you who are over 40, 40 is a long time to be wandering. So an entire generation dies off, and then you get to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is also a very difficult book to read, but that's because Deuteronomy is the re-giving of the law to the next generation of people. So it sounds a lot like Leviticus because it is a lot like Leviticus. It's a re-giving of the law to this next generation in Deuteronomy. Now, at some point during their wanderings, Moses disobeyed as well. And so Moses also could not enter the promised land. So if you turn to the back, you don't have to turn there. But if you go to the very back of Deuteronomy, make yourself a note to read the last chapter in Deuteronomy. There's this incredible picture of Moses standing right before the promised land. And he's standing on this hill, this mountain, and he's just looking into the promised land. And you can almost imagine all the thoughts and all the things that are going through his mind. Like, this is what I, where I have led these people. You know, I left Egypt, the 12 plagues, the parting of the, or the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, water coming out of a rock, manna falling from heaven. I mean, all the things that happened in Moses' life. And he finally gets all the way to the promised land and he's not allowed to enter for his disobedience. And so the Bible actually says God was the one who buried Moses, which is pretty powerful. So after Moses dies, this God raises up a new leader. And what was his name? 
Joshua. Next book of the Bible. Joshua. So Joshua, and Joshua's sole job is to lead the people into the promised land. And you're not going to be able to see this map very well, so my apologies. When we get to the new facility, we'll have bigger screens. Not huge ones, but we'll have, or maybe we'll just have bigger maps. I don't know. Um, but this is also in the back of your Bible. You don't have to turn there. But you have, the interesting thing is when they came into the promised land, they were given territories based on their tribe. So literally, this map is when they came into the promised land, Reuben had some space, Simeon had space, Judah, Ephraim, Joseph's two sons, Manasseh, and that's literally how the the land was split up, is they were given territories based on their tribe. And as you read through Joshua, it's it's this series of battles of them really purging the promised land of the people who were there and occupying the land that was promised all those years before to Abraham. And then the same promise was given to Isaac and to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So that's a lot of what's happening here. So they go into the land, and the crazy thing is, if you turn to the very end of Joshua, Joshua 24, I think I have it up there. Joshua comes, and there's this amazing speech he gives. They've eradicated most of the land of the people who were there. They're at the promised land. You know, I'm thinking a lot of lines of Moses looking over at the promised land. Well, now Joshua is in the promised land. Stuff has been conquered. The people have settled in their cities. You know, I almost think like Jake, you know, at the end of his life, whenever that is, standing up. He's not in here, but standing up in front of a group of people and just giving them one final challenge. Like, I have been with you. Joshua had been with the people. I mean, he was part of the original spy group that, was, that thought they could get into the promised land before the wanderings. So he had been in there a long time. And so this is very powerful for him. And at the very end, he's standing in front of these people. In Joshua 24, at the end of the book, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I, I, just, I love that speech. It's, I mean, it's such a great challenge for us even today. But as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. So Joshua dies, and here's the deal. Instead of, and this is really important for 1 Samuel, instead of replacing Joshua with another national leader, God says, I'm going to put judges in place. And that's why you go from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges. And these judges are really meant to help the people if they get in trouble, they're, they're administering the law in some situations. You really got to think military commanders is probably the best way to think of a judge. You know, think Samson. Samson, with all that strength, he was a judge. So that's, I mean, those are the type of people who were judges. All right, and, the, and here's the thing. If you read Judges, have you, how many of you have ever read through Judges? It's a crazy book, okay? And if you read through Judges, they start out halfway decent. You know, these judges, they're, you know, Josh, they're not that far removed from Joshua, and they're, they're, they're walking that good path. And then by the end of Judges, you know, things fall apart pretty quick. But Joshua, or Judges 2 gives a little recap of Joshua. So let's just pretend he's not, hasn't passed away yet. So this is Judges 2. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to take went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So each of the tribes went into possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. 
and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And then verse 10 says, and then here's where it gets important. And this is where it really sets the tone for 1 Samuel. Verse 10 of Judges 2 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 10, as a father, as a pastor, verse 10 Always scares me. It says, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. It doesn't take too many generations, if we're not careful, for people to walk away from the Lord. It really only takes one. And I'm not, you know, I realize things happen in situations, but as a father, I'm just like, you know, and I, I know my children are in the Lord's hands and this is not, you know, I do what I do and he does what he does and they're their own people. But it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's just so, don't ever stop praying for your kids and don't ever stop praying for the kids of this church. Don't ever stop praying for your kids. I don't care if they've been, if they've walked away from church and they've been gone for 10 years or 20 years. When I talked to my mom, you know, she prayed for me. I mean, I didn't, after high school, I quit going to church for probably eight years. I'm done with this. This doesn't do nothing for me. I don't want anything to do with that. And God, just the way he works, the way he does things, he brought me back. So don't ever stop praying for your kids and other people's kids, the kids of this church. Because that, that phrase, and there arose another generation after them who, do not, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done, that's powerful. All right, so we get to Judges. There's 12 different Judges throughout the book. So when you read the book of Judges, there's 12 judges. And by the time you reach the end, I'm not going to go through all the judges, but by the time you reach the end of Judges, one of the last stories is this guy who cuts up his concubine and sends one piece to the 12 tribes of Israel. Cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each of the... I mean, this this is where the nation of Israel has descended a few generations after Joshua. I mean, we're not that far removed from Joshua. And as the book of Judges winds down, this is what we see. This is, this is what 1 Samuel opens in. Okay, and it's important for you to know that. You have Joshua, Judges, you have Ruth. Ruth in the, original, in the original passages was not, like the positioning of Ruth was not right after Judges. The reason it got placed there was kind of more poetry and story-ish. So they actually had it in a different part of the Bible. So if you were originally reading this Old Testament, you would have read right through Joshua, Judges, Samuel. Samuel was one book originally. Um, the reason they ended up breaking it into two books is because of the length of a scroll. You know, the, the scribes would get to the end of the scroll, and it was 55 chapters together. It covered 110 years. So they would just kind of get to the end, and okay, we need a new scroll. So that's really why they kind of divided it into two. But it was originally Joshua, Judges, Samuel. And so that, that's what we're in. We're in the time of the Judges. This cutting up of this concubine has just happened. And you get this at the end of Judges, as it winds down, you start to see this phrase that appears. It's in chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, and it's also in Judges 21, 25, which is the last verse in the book of Judges. And here's what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That, that's, that's the last verse, and then boom, you immediately go into Samuel. Okay? So the author of Judges is really building, I think, our anticipation for a king. He's building our anticipation for something more important, someone coming to rescue. And obviously that will eventually be fulfilled in Christ, but it's going to be fulfilled in the short term by kings. In a couple chapters into Samuel, you're going to see the people demand a king. And so Saul's going to become king, and then David's going to be king, and then Solomon's going to become king. But you'll see their demand for a king. So Samuel is really considered the transition from what's called a theocracy. This is your theology lesson for the day. Theocracy, which is God being in charge and leading through judges, to a monarchy, which means you're being led by a king. And that's kind of what, what, what Samuel is. It's this, this transition to win the king's rule. And, but here's, here's the thing I want you to see before we dive in. The issue is not, the issue is not the lack of a king. The issue for them is their lack of obedience to the real king. That's the issue. A theocracy would have worked. A theocracy could have worked for years. They could have been ruled by judges, but they didn't, want to, they didn't want to obey the real king, capital K, the king, God, the king. Ultimately, they refused to acknowledge him as their king. And they wanted kind of a, they looked around at the nations around them, the nations that they refused to get rid of when they came into the promised land. And they said, well, they got a king and they got a king and they got a king and we want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. We don't want to be this oddball nation that is, you know, some invisible God. We, what is that? And that's really what they demanded. They said, we want a king. So that's, that's your background. That's your ushering up to 1 Samuel. When we open up 1 Samuel, there's no king. The judges are ruling and everything is in chaos. That's literally what's happening as you open to 1 Samuel 1.1. So here's how we start. There was a certain man, and I should get a prize for reading this verse. There was a certain man in Ramathim Zophin of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraithite. So, okay, let me boil it down for you. There's a guy named Elkanah. He's got two wives, okay? Never a good thing, not even in those days. A lot of times they did it anyway, but just because he had two wives doesn't mean you get two wives, all right? This is not, this is not the thing to do. All right, but he did. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. That's how the story opens. And the crazy thing is when you are a Jew and you're reading this Old Testament, you're trying to understand the story, you would have said, you would have left off at Judges. You would have saw the phrase that said, and there was no king in Israel. And then 1 Samuel 1.1 would have opened and it would have said, there was a certain man in the region of, and immediately you would have been thinking, is this the king? Like, is this finally the king they're going to be describing? And you quickly realize the story is going to go a very different route because God usually has very different plans than we have. The story drops, the book opens by dropping us into this little family, Elkanah, his two wives, Hannah, Peninnah. Hannah's name means favored. Peninnah's name means fruitful. Those are what the two names mean. They're certainly living up to their names. Peninnah had many children, as we'll find out, but Hannah was barren. She couldn't have kids. It is, as hard as that is to deal with even today in our society, I think it's difficult for us to grasp what barrenness was like in ancient times, in, in these days. You know, today I think we tend to put more value on other things 
You know, if you see someone or hear of someone who is infertile, couldn't have kids, whatever phrase you want to put on that, you just think, well, you know, there's other things in life that can keep... I mean, just, we, we, in our society, we don't tend to think too much about that. Um, we maybe put more value in what kind of job you have and what kind of car you drive and what you look like. And if you're up in the Northeast, where you go to school, every time I go to Boston, New York, everybody's like, where'd you go to school? I'm like, who cares? You know, I went to USF. What's the, and they're like, where's that? And I'm just like, you know, they just are waiting to tell you they went to Harvard. But that's, um, for some people, that's education and things are very important. And, we, we, and we, I think we put different values on things. But in their culture, it was a farming culture. It was a gr- agrarian society. So they, they farmed, they shepherded. The more sons you had, the more people you had to work the land. That was a good thing. The more workers you had to work the land, the more you could afford, the more income you had. The more income you had meant you had a better status in society and ultimately more security. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have all these things. So if you had a lot of sons, a lot of people to produce and work your land, you know, it would eventually, hopefully, lead to more security for you in the future. So infertility for Hannah, it was a really big deal. I know, again, not that it's not a big deal today, but in those days... You know, it was devastating. For, and, and everybody thought it was devastating. Everybody would look, oh, you know, poor Hannah, you know, that kind of thing. So verse 3, you see this. Now this man, talking about the husband, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah and Kana sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So once a year, the family would go up to Shiloh to worship. And you might be thinking, well, why would they go to Shiloh? Like, what's, what's the significance of Shiloh? Well, here's an easier to read version of my 12 tribes map from earlier. I just cut out the middle. So in Ephraim's territory, you see the word Shiloh just above the word Ephraim? So when they first brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land, and they first came in and started, you know, expunging the Promised Land, Jerusalem had yet to be conquered. So there was no Jerusalem. It existed, but there was Jebusites there, and they couldn't, they couldn't reign there. So they set up the original tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant at Shiloh. So when you hear Shiloh, just think, okay, before all this went down, this was Jerusalem. This is where they would come to worship every year. So that's what he did. Him and his family came up to worship every year at Shiloh. And they would, that's where, like I said, they set up the tabernacle. So in verse 6, you read, in her rival, so Hannah's, and this is the way the Bible calls it, her rival. So Hannah's rival, Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Year, don't, don't miss the way the Bible says this. Year after year. Doesn't say one trip back in 1974, she gave her a hard time. It says year after year, she would provoke her. They're, now think about this. They're headed to worship the Lord. To give thanks for what the Lord has done. And Peninnah is part of the caravan that's going. She's got all of her children in tow. You know, we don't know how many, but obviously it sounds like there's a lot of children. She's walking with her children. You know, you know how long it takes to have children. So obviously if this is happening year after year after year, then she's probably pregnant in a lot of these cases as she's walking to give, you know, to give thanks to the Lord, probably rubbing her belly, you know, literally rubbing it in and saying, you know, Hannah, what are you giving thanks for this year? You know, me and my children, we're all coming up to give thanks of everything the Lord has done for us. What are you going to give thanks for, Hannah? 
I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us what she said, but it says she provoked her year after year. All right, and then the sad part is when you, when you kind of break down what's happening, at a time when they should be worshiping, she's provoking. At a time where they gather together to worship, Peninnah is trying to make her doubt the goodness of God. And as you walk through life, there will always be people whose goal it is to, is to make you doubt the goodness of God. That's, a, you know, it's just their, their purpose in life. Their purpose in their relationship to you, for some reason, is to make you doubt the goodness of God. And if you're not careful, they will chip away at your faith, chip by chip. Chip away, chip away, chip away. And before long, you realize that your faith has begun to slide. You've started to believe these lies that they're speaking to you. And all of a sudden, you've drifted away from God, and you don't trust him anymore, and you don't think he's good, and you don't think he's God, you don't think he is who he says he is, and we've all been there. It's really easy to let other people speak these lies into our lives and not say, you know what, Lord, I don't believe them. You are who you say you are. I know my prayers aren't being answered in the way that I hope that they're answered, but you are who you say you are. And that's, that's where you have to bring yourself back. No matter what this fallen world throws at you, God is who he says he is. And her husband does a good job. Well, let me rephrase that. Her husband tries to comfort her in verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, husbands... Let me just make a little recommendation that this is not, like, you just, this is not how you comfort. Um, You're really awesome, but you are not what your wife may be in certain situations. This woman is desiring a child, and her husband is saying, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Why do you need children? And, you know, here, he gets points for effort. He gets points for trying. But here's, here's the thing. If you, if you read the rest of this story, you're going to see, hopefully, and understand, I think Hannah's desire is not just for children. Her desire, yeah, it is, but her desire is not for children so she can get back at Panetta and shut her mouth. That's probably a good byproduct, but that's, you know, that's not her goal. I do not believe that's her goal. Beyond financial security in this, in this culture, children were also, they had a kingdom component. Children were a kingdom component. You remember when God told Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky? So if you didn't have kids, your genealogy stopped. Your genealogy was no more. If you didn't have children, it was over. Your theoretical blessings, the blessings that would come for generations and years to come in your mind and the way you would think is over. Your line stopped. Your genealogy was finished. And on top of that, there was always this hope, and it would grow more with Isaiah, but there was always this hope for the anointed one. There was always this hope for a savior. And with every male child that was born, there was this, I wonder if he's the one. Like, I wonder. I just wonder if this child will be the one. Maybe this will be the anointed one. So if you didn't have children, on top of the security issue, the four, no 401k issue, no long-term security issue, on top of not feeling like you're really participating in the kingdom of God, you know, your, your genealogy could end. You just, it was hopeless, it was, it was a hopeless situation. Tim Chester, who has a great commentary on Samuel, says, barrenness was certainly a personal tragedy. 
but it also carried a sense of exclusion from the purpose of God's people. Can you imagine, you know, think of them going up year after year. Can you imagine walking in to worship with God's people and being ostracized for not having children? Like, can you fathom that? Can you walk in to worship the creator and you are being ostracized for not having children? Like, if you don't have children, you can't worship the Lord. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. But that's, that's the feeling that Hannah, that Hannah has. Or maybe, you know, make it, let's change it a little. Let's say, you know, being ostracized for not being married. That's a desire. That's a desire given by God. I think it's a biblical desire to want to be married, but God doesn't call everybody to marriage. Not everybody's going to get married. That's fine. And, you know, you're coming into a church service and feeling ostracized because you're single. That's just, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, but it happens all the time. You know, weird because I didn't go to college, because I decided to go somewhere else. I decided to do something else. Feeling awkward because I work over here. I don't make as much money as this person, or I do this, or I, maybe I dress differently. Like, the, that's about as silly as what Hannah is being ostracized for. She has no control over the fact that whether she can have children. And that's about as silly as what she's being ridiculed for. And may we never, ever, ever be a church that does the same. May we never be a church that makes people feel weird because they don't have a family. Makes people feel, we are the family. We are the adopted family of God. And you could feel so alone like some of us do at times. This is your family. God has brought you, he has grafted you in not only to his family, but he has grafted you into our family. And I hope that as you come in here and you come to this church and you come to Creekside Church that you feel loved. And we're going to let you down. I promise we will. But I hope that you feel loved not only with us, but with your heavenly father. Because when we screw up, he doesn't. And he loves you more than anything. All right, verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So Hannah goes to the temple. She's sad. She's feeling hopeless. She's weeping bitterly, it says. Verse 11. And she vowed a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We'll get into this a little more next week, but listen to her prayer. She's crying out to the Lord. And I I think it's clear by reading it You know, she's not looking to get back at Panina. She's not looking for her own gratification. She wants to participate in the work of the Lord. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And as we're going to see next week, she does get a son, and she gives him back at three years old. And I can't even imagine. And we'll talk about that next week. But I can't even imagine what that must have been like. But she wants to participate in the work of the Lord. So she says, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And here's, you know, I was just kind of thinking through, Caitlin and Jojo stayed with us last night. Um, They're... They're friends of ours. We go, our relationships go back a while. My wife, Courtney, and JoJo's wife, Caitlin, are actually from the same small town in central Florida. Some of you may have heard of it. Most of you have not. Umatilla. Anybody ever heard of Umatilla? All right. A couple of you Florida natives have. Um, but it's a little one-stoplight town. It's near Mount Dora, Eustis, that area of the state. Um, they both came to Tampa for college. They actually roomed together when they were in school. And after Caitlin graduated, 
she started working as a social worker, and then she decided, man, I just feel like, and Courtney and I were involved in her life at that time, and she, kept, she was talking to us, getting advice, and she says, I feel like the Lord's calling me to, to missions. Like, I just feel like the Lord wants me to go overseas. And so she started working with the IMB, the International Mission Board, and she went to India for a term, and it was like a two-year term. Um, and that's where she met Jojo. And obviously the rest is history. But I remember a few years ago, Courtney and I, this is after they were, or right as they were getting married, right as they were getting married, Courtney and I were back in her hometown and I had gotten to know Caitlin's dad just because when we were in town, we would go to the church and they went to the same church. So, and he sang. So I got to know Caitlin's dad. And so I saw him and we were out and we were, we were talking and we got talking about India. We're talking about missions. And during our conversation, I had this, this realization of what it must have been like for him as a father. You know, Caitlin, her home life, she's the baby. She's the little girl. She's the only girl. She's got two older brothers. And so as I'm sitting here talking to her dad, who we're talking about, hey, how do you feel about JoJo and missions and her, you know, moving? And, you know, it's very, very possible. You know, I can see his wheels turning. He had thought this through many times. But he knew if they got married, if they got married, she would spend a good portion of her life on the other side of the globe. I mean, she's married an Indian who has a ministry in India and lives in India. That's where they met. All right, and here's his father, I think, that's, he's just working through this. And he knows that she's going to go through ups and downs, being away, from her, being away from him and being away from the family, and he won't be there to give her a hug. And she'll have grandbabies, and he won't be there to watch them grow up and just get pictures. You know, they won't celebrate birthdays together like so many of you do with your kids, your grandkids. And I asked him, I just said, how are you doing with it all? And, you know, I don't, I don't honestly remember exactly what he said, but essentially he said this. He said, I've always known she belonged to the Lord and she needs to follow his calling on her life. And at the time I remember thinking, wow, that is, you know, it's amazing. It's a very, it's a very Sunday school thing to say. You know, I'm thinking to myself, that's, that's the right thing to say. But now, six years later, when I have my own kids, that's a pretty amazing thing to say. To know that your kids, that God has your kids. God is in control of your kids. And you're going to raise your kids the way you raise your kids, but ultimately they are the Lord's. And to be willing to say when your kid comes to you and says, I think God's calling me to missions, and I think he's calling me to missions in India, and you doing the math of how often you're going to be able to see them, and you saying, okay, if that's what God has called you to, that's what God has called you to. As opposed to saying, nah, are you sure? You know, I don't think he's calling up. Let me pray about this and let you know if I really think God. I mean, that's, that's what I would do. Because <laughs> um, it's, it's easy to encourage someone else to send their kids away. It's really easy to do that. You know, send their kids, oh man, good. Yeah, your kid should definitely go overseas and do missions. But when it's my own kid, or they move away for some other reason, but you know they've prayed about it. Maybe they got a job overseas. Maybe they got a job across the country. But you know that they've prayed about it. You know that's what God wants them to do. Never forget that the blessings that God gives you aren't just for you. The blessings that God gives you aren't just for you. That job you have, that money you make, it's not just for you. It's for people like Caitlin and JoJo. It's for people like, even like Creekside Church. It's not just for us. There's a lot of good churches out there, a lot of people doing ministry out there. But the money that God has given you is not just for you. The house you live in, it's not just for you. If you're a follower of Christ, that house is for hospitality. 
It's for having people over. It's for encouraging people who are down and out. It's for having married couples over, maybe who are struggling and just saying, man, I love you. I want to be around you. I want to encourage you. And you know, you're using the things that God has given you. And those kids you have, those wonderful blessings from the Lord, they're his. Please don't keep them from fulfilling the ministry that God has given them. You know, we all want them to grow up and live next door to us and have five grandchildren, right? Maybe three. (laughs) Five's a lot. But God might have other plans for them. God might have other plans for them. Always trust the goodness of God. All right, verse 12. We'll wrap up with these last couple verses. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Go on being drunk. Put your wine away. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant you petition that you, might, that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So I love that she enters the presence of the Lord. If you remember from a few verses ago, weeping bitterly. She enters the presence of the Lord weeping bitterly. And when she leaves, it says her face is no longer sad. Hannah has no idea how God's going to answer her prayer. Probably no idea if he's going to answer her prayer, but she prayed. She left her request with the creator and she knows he is in control. That, that's, our, that's our role. To ask and ask and ask and ask. Leave those requests with the creator and walk away knowing that he is in control. I almost think the apostle Paul, if you read Philippians, he probably didn't have Hannah in mind, but he could have. When he wrote, this ch- wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, when Jesus talks about prayer, he uses the example of a child asking a father for help. He uses it quite often, you know, like just ask me, ask me, ask me, ask me. I don't know if you've been around four-year-olds lately. I have. Um, They don't exactly ask in a quiet and thoughtful way. You know, they're usually, she yells, and I shouldn't say she. Um, Usually they yell, and they scream, and they insist, and they shout, and they cry. And here's the deal. When you do that to the Lord, he hears and knows the deepest desires of your heart. And year after year, just like Hannah, when you continue to cry out to him, and year after year when others are ridiculing you for your faith, ridiculing you for where you are in your walk with Christ, God is listening. I read a story the other day from a missionary in Uganda, and part of his outreach in Uganda was to visit orphanages. And he said he would go around, he would care for orphans, and he said he visited this one orphanage in Uganda. And he said he walked in, and when he walked in, you know, it was kind of like a big room. And it had a metal door and, he, you know, it was a loud clank when he walked in. And they looked around and there was a hundred cribs around the room. And he just expected, you know, all of a sudden just this eruption of crying in these cribs. And he just expected all this noise. But he said as he walked around the room, there was nothing but silence. And he, after a little bit, he wasn't used to this. 
So he said after a little bit, he turned to his host and he just said, why, why is the room so quiet? And she said, well, when the vape, we don't have enough help. We don't have enough people to help these babies. So when they first get to the orphanage, they're just like any other baby. Crying at everything. They want help. They want to be fed. They want all this stuff. She said, but after a week and countless hours of crying, they eventually reach a point where they realize that no one's coming. And they stop. And when you cry out to God, your cry, it's a cry of faith. It's a cry that says, I know when I cry out to you, you're coming. It may not be what I want, but you're coming. When my three-week-old at home cries, she believes someone is coming to her rescue. And for you and I, our crying out to God in prayer, the Lord of hosts, it's a cry of faith. It's a belief that your heavenly Father is able and willing to help you in your time of need. And here's the deal. Sometimes your prayers won't be answered the way you'd hoped. That's just the sad reality. But it doesn't change the fact that God is good. Some of you may be sitting here today and you're like, I have never put my faith in Christ. I don't, you know, I've never cried out to my Heavenly Father. I didn't really understand about the Heavenly Father. Here's the deal. He is pursuing you, which is why you're here today. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to come to your rescue. And he wants to know, he wants to tell you, I died on the cross for your sins. So you can spend eternity with me. The loving father waiting to wrap his arms around you. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, and I use this for almost every time I preach because I love it. It says, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with the heart that one confesses or one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And for the rest of you, those you say, yeah, I've put my faith in Jesus. Be encouraged by this first half of the story of Hannah. All right, as we'll see next week, God grants her request. She gets a child, gets a young boy, Samuel. And Samuel will go on to help shape the future of Israel. And it could be that those prayers of that woman year after year after year actually help shape the entire trajectory of Israel because that's what Samuel would go on to do. All right, and I realize, you know, historical stories, it's hard to, I don't know, they don't necessarily apply to us. It's literally history of Israel, all right? So I'm not asking you to go home and, you know, expect that every single thing you ever pray for, God's going to do. But I do know that your prayers will be answered in the way that God ordains in your life. It may not be the way that you want, but I've seen it time and time again in my own life. I'm, I'm going to close the story and then I'm done. Courtney and I, have been married almost nine years now. And from day one, we always wanted to adopt. Um, and probably because my mom worked for Florida Baptist Children's Home, and so I just kind of grew up around adoption. I knew what it was. Um, and Courtney had always just had this calling on her life to adopt. And so we knew from day one, literally first date, we talked about adoption, which is really strange. I didn't, we didn't know it would be with each other, but we talked about adoption. So probably two years into our marriage, we started talking about having kids. Okay, and we made the decision, hey, you know, like, like we were in charge, but we made this decision that um, we were going to start trying to have biological children, and then at the exact same time, we would start the adoption process. 
you know, we knew Lord was in control. Whatever the Lord wanted to do, he would do. So that's what we did. So January of 2013, we started exploring adoption agencies. We settled on one in February of 2013. I don't know if you've ever done paperwork, but there's about this much paperwork to do for adoption. So we started this long process of filling out all the paperwork. And on March 3rd, 2013, we went to the adoption agency, turned in all of our paperwork on March 3rd. And she goes, okay, well, thank you. Um, you know, we, they have no control. The birth moms are the ones that go through all the profiles and kind of choose who's going to adopt. So she goes, it could be a year, could be two years. We don't know how long it'll be, but, you know, it's, when it happens, it happens. We'll let you know. So that was March 3rd. On March 5th, we got a call that a birth mom had been looking through these profiles and she wanted to meet us. So a few days later, we went and met with this wonderful young lady. And after the meeting, we were informed that we were matched. That's what the phrase is when the birth mom says, yep, I'm fine with them. Let's go. So, and then we also found out she was due in two and a half weeks. So that was, that was our lead time. We turned in our paperwork on March 5th, and Jaden was born on March 30th. Um, we signed all the paperwork the next day, which happened to be Easter Sunday, and we signed all the paperwork in the hospital on Easter Sunday. And here, here's, here's the reason I tell you that. As the years have passed, Courtney and I now realize it's going to be almost impossible for us to have biological children. I mean, we, we didn't know that at the time, but we now realize it's going to be almost impossible for us to have biological children. And we have prayed, and we have prayed, just like Hannah. You know, we have prayed, and we have prayed, and we have prayed, and there have been tears that have been shed on many occasions. And has God answered our prayers? No. He has not answered our prayers that we would have biological children. But here's why I love this story, and that's why I told you this one as opposed to the crazy adoption story that also was three weeks long that just took place a month ago, that we have a little three-week-old in our house. Um, That was just as crazy, if not crazier. But the reason I tell you this one instead is because God knew how he was going to build our family. We didn't know how. He knew how he was going to build our family. And before we even knew that we were going to have issues having kids— he put a beautiful little boy in our home. When we adopted Jaden, we had absolutely no idea that we were going to have any kind of issues having biological children. We just knew that adoption was something we wanted to do. And we knew, you know, and all of a sudden, before, I mean, we didn't even realize it until probably nine months later when we were, you know, trying to have another child. And then we were like, well, let's just go the adoption route again. And boom, like three, three months went by and Isabella was in our home. And that's just the way the Lord has done this. But here's, here's the thing. God knew before we knew. He always knew that there was going to be issues. He knew before we even knew each other there was going to be issues. And he decided to bless us with a beautiful little boy that we adopted. You never tell me in a million years that that's not my kid. Never in a million years. And I've realized over the past few years that God has a plan. And there are desires that you have deep, deep, deep in your heart. They might be for kids. They might be for marriage. They might be for family members to get saved. They might, I mean, there's so many deep, deep desires that you have deep down in your heart. And I, I encourage you to keep giving those requests to God. And they may not be answered the way that you want them answered. They might be answered in a totally different path, but he knows your heart's desires and he has a plan for your life, even when it doesn't make sense to you. And even if you would do it totally differently. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens, he is good. Let's pray.